Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week, we're looking at the Equality Act, introduced in this session of Congress as H.R. 5. Joining our roundtable from Nashville, Tennessee, is our ERLC Director of Research and Senior Fellow in Christian Ethics, Andrew T. Walker. Andrew works and writes at the intersection of Christian ethics, public policy, and the church's social witness. He also oversees the ERLC's academic initiatives and directs the ERLC's research institute. Dr. Walker holds multiple degrees, most recently a PhD in Christian ethics from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is married to Christian and they have three daughters. And he is a huge baseball, football, and basketball fan, (laughs) Andrew T. Woke. Thanks for joining Chelsea, (laughs) Travis, and me today. DC team, it is great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, and I cannot wait to talk about all of the great sports ball things happening in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having us, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? So, uh, Mr. Woke, why don't you—I'm sorry about that. Dr. Woke, why don't you tell us your favorite thing about sports? (laughs) Uh, A couple things would be, A, leaving the ERLC's sports Slack channel is my favorite thing to do. Regarding sports, number two is trolling all sports advocates. Three is when the sweet, sweet time happens when there is neither college basketball nor college football uh, intruding on my Twitter timeline which will be happening here quite quickly, I guess, in April or May. That's kind of my sweet spot for Twitter because sports Twitter uh, is is uh, hibernating. So you prefer political tribal Twitter burning down all of our uh, good institutions and neighborly community as opposed to, say, banter about March Madness. Yeah, exactly. Think of me as like um, Heath Ledger's character as the Joker when it comes to Twitter. And uh, <laughs> leaving leaving sports Twitter completely, uh, you know, setting it ablaze just to watch right. it go ablaze. Do you, do you at least watch cat and dog videos on Twitter, Andrew? <laughs> I can't say that I do, but I I do. One of my callings, I feel like, is to <laughs> wow. is to definitely so just pure watch. divisiveness. Just pure divisiveness. <laughs> on pure divisiveness. Yeah, I, I have one of those personalities. I feel like uh, that that needs to know what both the extreme right and extreme left are saying. So uh, that's that's kind of my. Uh, In other words, an Enneagram One. Enneagram One, which Travis is is quick to point out. I am very much an Enneagram One. Yeah, we wear our Enneagram numbers as lapel badges around uh, the Leland house. (laughs) That's not true, Jeff. We don't do that. (laughs) Just to correct the record. They're just tattooed on your forehead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're tattooed on our foreheads. So if you enjoy Capital Conversations and banter such as this, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to us on iTunes, as I know many of you are, would you consider dropping us a five-star rating and a review? This will help others find our show. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations around our table would foster a new evangelical imaginative for political engagement. If you know someone who would enjoy this show, send them a link. In addition to iTunes, every episode of Capital Conversations can be found at ERLC.com, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, and Spotify. Subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate it very much. 
All right, before we get into uh, the conversation about the Equality Act with Andrew, Chelsea, I want to come to you first uh, because there's some significant movement on a piece of legislation that we were supporting in the Senate, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. There's now movement on that bill in the House. Tell us what is happening this week. Thanks, Jeff. So this past Tuesday, April 2nd, the House Minority Whip um, Steve Scalise and Rep. Ann Wagner, who is the sponsor of the legislation in the House, filed a discharge petition for the Born Alive bill. So the discharge petition is a tool for the minority party in the House um, that they can use to force a vote on a particular piece of legislation. Since the Speaker of the House controls what comes to the floor of the House, this um, petition can force a floor vote um, by the minority party. Um, The petition must receive 218 signatures before it can be brought to the floor. Um, The ERLC supports this bill and the effort by the House. So each legislative day since the Born Alive bill was introduced in the House, a representative um, has gone to the House floor and asked for unanimous consent for the House to bring up this bill. It has now occurred 28 times, which is um, absolutely wonderful. Everyone from um, Leader McCarthy to Steve Scalise to Ann Wagner and um, so many others have gone and presented the case for this bill and, and asked for this to be brought to the floor. This past Tuesday, when the discharge petition was filed, Whip Scalise hosted a press conference that featured um, multiple members of Congress, as well as our friend Melissa Odin, who we recently had the privilege of interviewing on this podcast. It was great to meet her. It was so great to meet her. Out of the Capitol. She said, I was not what she thought I would look like. And did not expound upon. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't tell me what she got. But (laughs) uh, but uh, no. In in all seriousness, she uh, just gave powerful commentary uh, at the press conference. Really, I mean, I'm sorry. I know that politicians always, uh, you know, their speeches are it's what they do for a living. But Melissa totally stole the show. Uh, Just an incredible story, not only of surviving an abortion, but also reconciling with her birth mother, Mm -hmm. uh, which is just absolutely incredible uh, for for her to be out there, to be at the podium, talking about the real voiceless lives that are affected by this debate. So, Mm -hmm. Absolutely full circle. So it was great to meet her and to talk to her. Um, And the discharge petition, when it was dropped on um, Tuesday, received 191 signatures. It's now up to 198. Um, But this is the most signatures that a discharge petition has received in over 20 years. So I think that's worth highlighting. Yeah, absolutely. Again, to point people to some of our great work, uh, we have a podcast with uh, Melissa. We also interviewed um, Alexandria DeSanctis from National Review and have some great articles on our website. So I would direct people to check out those if they want more in depth. But I mean, the bottom line is Americans deserve to know where elected officials stand on infanticide. It was brought up in the Senate. It's hopefully going to be brought up in the House and we can get people on record to show um, just the extremity of people's positions. And um, you know, Well, in, to, in a real minority position. I mean, this is absolutely. a great example of the power of the abortion lobby over the Democratic Party. And we're hoping to disrupt that and that there would be some more Democrats that would come to sign this petition and bring this absolutely common sense bill to the floor. It's, it's outrageous that it's even being debated. Thanks for all of your work in in following this debate, Chelsea. All right, so let's jump into uh, the conversation about HR five, uh, the Equality Act. And Andrew, I want to I want to come to you first because you've you've done a lot of work 
on the issues that H.R. 5 addresses. You authored a book, God and the Transgender Debate, and on the Monday that H.R. 5 was introduced in March, you published a piece at the Gospel Coalition, which we will link to in the show notes. So I just want to start with sort of a broad theological and cultural question. Why are gender and sexuality issues important for the Christian to consider and think critically about? Well, right now we're at a time, and this is not really a new time, it's it's just coming to a head and going, you know, rather than 20 miles per hour at about 150 miles per hour, where these new ideas uh, of human sexuality and what the, the proper moral way to conduct oneself sexually and how to identify sexually and how to conceive of oneself as male and female... Uh, we're at a we're at a place in society where a very progressive vision for these debates is either um, directly running head headlong and, and conflicting with a more traditional understanding of these types of uh, categories of marriage and male and female, or altogether displacing a a traditional gender or sexual ethic, and and that that term of traditional is is somewhat a problematic category because what does it mean uh, for tradition uh, to play and and how we understand our our moral norms and as Christians we're coming at this from a, a biblical worldview so it's more than just tradition um, and the the biblical tradition paints a very clear picture on uh, how sexuality is to be understood um, how we're to understand the types of desires that we experience as uh, sexual creatures, and then how we conceive of ourselves as male and female. And so you have uh, the Bible and, and a, a view of creation that the Bible presents on the one hand, and you have not just a set of different policy proposals, but really a different metaphysical explanation for how we give account to our sexual desires and our identities of male and female. And Sadly, they're they're often contradictory. Uh, the progressive vision uh, views human nature as something that's more bendable and, and plastic, and we can form reality to fit our perceptions and desires. And that's not how the biblical architecture works around sexuality and gender. Right. So the the title of your TGC article is that the Equality Act accelerates anti-Christian bias, and the pull quote. The TGC used right up at the front, and I want to start with this. You say the bill represents the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America. What is the Equality Act, and and why is it such an invasive threat? What what is it about the Equality Act that represents this most invasive threat to religious liberty? So it, it brings a, a progressive understanding of gender and sexuality, uh, and and mainstreams it in just about every facet of American life. Uh, that comes in the context of the Civil Rights Act from 1964, and it inserts the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity. So all of the areas in American public life that hit on this piece of legislation, which is traditionally housing, public accommodation, and employment, which is basically everything, it codifies this progressive vision into federal law and says, this is how we as a society understand these issues, and you now have to follow and abide by this understanding of gender and sexuality. And if you don't, law is going to treat you as uh, as an enemy. And this is not a value-neutral or viewpoint-neutral type of bill. It says law is going one way, and you need to get in line, or else you're going to be seen as 
an enemy of reason, so to speak, or you'll be considered um, a, a bigot. And one of the things I wrote about in this bill is that the Equality Act effectively turns people like Billy Graham into Jim Crow because it says mm. that views like ours cannot be held uh, in good faith, that there isn't a rational, reasonable explanation for why we believe what we believe about sexuality and gender. And in, and in fact, you can only hold those, according to the Equality Act, based in animus, which means you are acting irrationally uh, with an intention to harm your fellow neighbor. So again, the Equality Act is not viewpoint neutral. Uh, but then secondly, what the Equality Act does, and this is actually quite stunning, is it it specifically defangs or or says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act cannot be appealed to in these types of circumstances uh, where there might be a conflict between sexual orientation and gender identity issues versus a religious liberty issue. Um, so it, it gives religious objectors absolutely no recourse. So you know we're still figuring out if and what any exceptions or exemptions could be included, but hypothetically, uh, if the Equality Act becomes law, any Christian higher educational institution that has uh, a statement of faith and a statement of conduct for its students, all of a sudden they become on the opposite side of federal law, and they find themselves ineligible to receive all of the different types of grants or, or funding mechanisms that other institutions are typically eligible for. And not just not just grants, but but also students who receive yeah. financial, you know, financial, financial aid, federal financial yeah. assistance, but also uh, guaranteed federal loans. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, this this is a bill that again it encompasses pretty much all of our shared public life and our shared public space, um, and it sends the signal that Christians and not just Christians. Jewish individuals, Mormon individuals, uh, Muslim individuals, or people who have no faith at all but believe by on the basis of reason what we believe uh, about male and female uh, identity and sexuality, all of a sudden they're wrong, um, and, and they're not welcomed in society like they once were. So, so Andrew, I, I want to ask you a question about how did we get here culturally? What is the history behind this kind of legislation? How did we get here? Well, I think it's been a conversation happening in the culture um, since, you know, the 1950s and 60s onward. I mean, we could spend a whole couple hours talking about the the genealogy of of the sexual revolution. Um, but you know, the Princeton professor Robert George talks about this philosophy known as expressive individualism, and he says that's that's mainly what the uh, the the ethical fabric of America is today, is that you have an obligation to yourself to identify and live out and express yourself uh, in whatever fashion you deem is appropriate for you. So that's that's born in, in individualism. It's born in a notion of relativism. It's a very subjective understanding of, of who the human person is. It says the human, the human person is at the center of defining who they are rather than seeing the human person as a distinct creation of God, uh, made in God's image, and therefore having certain moral obligations and duties. And so I think if you trace from the 1950s onward, you can see law and entertainment and culture and government slowly um, embrace a, a different anthropology that looks less and less Christian as we go 
uh, as a society. So I know this is this is kind of a brief explanation, but there's not one single explanation to account for it. It's it's a matrix where you have um, you have declining religiosity. So th- so the nuns n o n e s that's that's increasing. So people have a growing lack of familiarity with a biblical sexual ethic. Uh, they've been habituated and taught. Uh, in in whatever context individuals have found themselves about what what the nature of sexuality is, so you can t- you can look at public education, you can look at what uh, the law has communicated as far as what uh, consent means in the in the context of sexuality. So again, it's it's a complicated matrix, but uh, none of this stuff happens v- divorced from the other because we are affective beings that we are constantly. Um, being, uh, we're being taught, and then we're teaching others. We are listening to music, we're watching TV, and that informs what we think the true good and the beautiful is. And we are having a um, a subtle and, and now rapid displacement of of what truth, goodness, and beauty is. And there are alternate visions for that. And the Christian one, I believe, is. Symbolically, at least, however you want to, you know, cite the numbers, symbolically is on decline. Yeah, and I would just add to that, Andrew. Um, after same-sex marriage was legalized in America, I think this was accelerated, and this was the next obvious frontier to conquer as far as legislation, policy, cultural discussions. Yeah. Um, it just accelerated it and heightened well, it. Yeah, and I mean, not not to be hyper reductive here, but I mean, a lot of scholars would look at something like um, Griswold v. Connecticut, um, which was a, a contraception uh, ruling from the Supreme Court that that birthed this notion of a right to privacy, and the right to privacy uh, then became kind of weaponized, and that has been kind of the jurisprudential crux that has uh, kind of left open the ability for people to bring uh, different understandings of identity and desire into the public square, and you you wage these conflicts oftentimes not in the ballot box, but on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ish, uh, ushers in a new moral reality. Uh, the, the Supreme Court is a pedagogical institution that is communicating norms of what of what American society is uh, either has 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 experienced. uh, past tense or will be experiencing future tense. Um, So again, there's this constant ongoing uh, dynamic of of who came first, who came second. It's it's hard to say, but here we are. So another country uh, that's dealing with laws regarding sexuality is a a tiny Southeast Asian country uh, of Brunei. They are uh, in the news, uh, not in the news often, but they are in the news recently because the country just criminalized same-sex sexual activity. I just want to pose this to uh, to the table as we're talking about a law, the Equality Act in America, dealing with the same issue, uh, but, but this country in Southeast Asia just criminalizes uh, same-sex sexual activity. What should we make of this uh, in light of thinking about the Equality Act, what we're thinking about gender and sexuality critically here in the states this other country criminalizes the activity what should we what should we make of this well i think what this what this does it 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 shows the uniqueness of a christian worldview is that we can on the one hand oppose the equality act uh, because we believe 
that it enforces one orthodoxy and to the detriment of Christians and like-minded individuals, while at the same time opposing types of laws in Brunei that we believe are invasive, uh, are an assault on the image of God. Um, and so, you know, we as Southern Baptists do not support same-sex sexual activity. We consider that sinful. But there's a legitimate question that becomes of, of interest of, of what is the responsibility of the state to police and enforce private consensual acts between adults? And so uh, we, can, we can say uh, we oppose homosexual behavior uh, while protecting the dignity of our uh, homosexual neighbor, saying that they're made in the image of God, and they, they don't deserve to be executed for these types, this, this, this type of conduct. Uh, so we want to, again, uphold the dignity for all people, uh, recognize conscience rights for Christians, and then call the state to a proper restrained vision for itself uh, in, in, in how it polices its citizens. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think Andrew's exactly right. What's, what, is, what Christians may believe is sinful is not always criminal. And I, and I think, Andrew, you make a good point that, that our, our opposition to, uh, to criminalizing same-sex uh, sexual activity, whether that's here or uh, in Brunei or uh, in East Africa— you know, is is rooted by the principle that that God has laid out the parameters for what is just and what is unjust for government to do, um, and so this you know this is another example of of government reaching beyond the authorities given to it by God to you know to enforce those matters that that ultimately uh, reside in the conscience. I think you know one of the things that Dr. Moore. Uh, says all the time is is the idea that government can't make people into Christians. It can only make people into pretend Christians. Now Brunei is a you know is a majority Muslim country, so they're trying to make people into Muslims, uh, not Christians. But at, at the end of the day, we don't we don't think the government can uh, can do that because the Lord is Lord alone of the conscience. Right, right. So coming back here to the states uh, and the Equality Act that we are discussing, this week the House Judiciary Committee hosted its first hearing on H.R. 5. And in his opening remarks, Chairman Nadler said something very interesting that I'd love to uh, have all of you weigh in on. He said that we don't need to choose between discrimination for LGBT Americans and religious freedom because the Equality Act secures both. Do we agree? Uh, well, no, Jeff. We don't. We don't agree. With that. <laughs> we don't agree um, with that. Okay. I I thought. Oh, wow. There's a there's a there's a great uh, sort of olive branch there from yeah. the other side. But we well, don't and, agree. And, and I think you know to to even broaden out the the point that you're making uh, with your with your question, Jeff. Um, in his opening remarks, Chairman Nadler, you know, said, "Look, in in 20 different states, there are these." sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination laws, and we haven't seen the parade of horribles that um, that those on the right uh, say are, are coming. And that was a point that he made and that was reiterated by several other members of the committee. But what he failed to point out is that in, in his home state of New York, which has a SOGI non-discriminated sexual orientation, gender identity uh, non-discrimination ordinance, there also is a very broad religious liberty exemption within that. That that religious liberty exemption does not exist in the Equality Act. Okay. And that's the case in almost every jurisdiction that has, certainly the states, that have these sexual orientation and gender identity uh, ordinances is they have provided space for people 
people who disagree, whether that's in the context of education or, or churches or religious nonprofits or, uh, or parochial schools uh, and so on. So, you know, so I mean, in, in New York, uh, a parochial school that holds to an orthodox view of human sexuality uh, is still allowed to exist, whether it's Orthodox Jewish or, or Catholic or Christian, they're still allowed to operate. With the Equality Act, that wouldn't be the case because the Equality Act doesn't contain those same kinds of allowances for people who disagree. And and I would add, too, that um, Representative Nadler's statement might be true insofar as he's using words that sound nice, uh, but what, do you, what does he mean by religious freedom? Um, because you can have a very truncated vision for religious freedom— where you can say, well, if we if we pass the Equality Act, it doesn't impact the life of the of, of churches, um, but that's a very truncated view of of what religious freedom uh, is in our constitutional framework. That religious freedom is not a freedom to worship alone. That we have a more robust context for religious freedom. That we are allowed to take our convictions outside the four walls of our church because our religious convictions help constitute what we believe about everything else in the world. And that shapes our morality. It shapes our um, interactions with our neighbor, with our children, how we work. Um, And if you're being told that your religion can only stay inside the four walls of a church, uh, that's a nice, pious statement. It's just not congruent with what our constitutional history uh, calls for when it comes to religious liberty. Right, and it's and it's worth pointing out that it's probably also not even congruent with uh, with the law because the way that the Equality Act works is it expands the definition of what a public accommodation is to the point that it probably includes churches and synagogues and mosques mm-hmm. in some cases. In other that's words, those 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 institutions. You know, one of, one of the things that's said over and over again is, look, nobody's trying to to force a, a pastor, or priest, or a rabbi. Uh, to perform a same-sex uh, ceremony, fair enough. I'm I'm glad I'm glad that 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 that's uh, uncontested ground. The problem is that the the text of the law itself does reach into those spaces, and it does reach into what churches can do, mosques and uh, and and synagogues can do, uh, in terms of whether they're operating a soup kitchen or or other sorts of community activities. Another witness that was that was brought by the minority uh, in this case uh, was a was a Duke law professor who. She does not support this bill uh, because it states that there are no inherent differences between males and females when you bring gender identity into the discussion. So the example she gives that would be disrupted by the Equality Act would be Title IX, sports, protected women's shelters mm-hmm. uh, that must be separated on the basis of sex, that, that this bill would just obliterate our understanding of the legal differences in the in the different domains where those differences should be respected, like shelters, uh, like women's sports, if gender identity were to be codified uh, into federal law. So uh, that that was an interesting opposition to this. And uh, I hope, for one, that, uh, that that will gain some traction uh, in the greater cultural conversation around this bill. Andrew, do you think there's any there's any hope that that's going to gain some traction? Well, so at the at the principial level, I mean, let's think about what the Equality Act does when it talks about how we develop an idea of, of what a woman is. It says that a woman is nothing more than a psychological category uh, or or something built on the notion of gender. It's a gender construct. And so I remember hearing at the – not personally, I wasn't there, but someone at the Heritage Foundation, when they were discussing this, they called the Equality Act the Female Erasure Act, which is exactly right, because it 
it does damage to the integrity of objective and authentic womanhood, which is why you have a lot of feminists who are up in arms over the Equality Act, because mm. to be a feminist requires there to be something that is objectively feminine. Right. That's not simply a matter of social construct. It's a biological bodily reality, and the Equality Act completely guts that, which is why uh, in within the last year, uh, two biological males in various state track and field championships competed as females uh, because they identify as girls and ended up winning state championships in track and right. field uh, competing against biological females. And so this is of, of interest to me as a runner because you have to ask the question, like, well, what is it that's different about men and women when it comes to running ability? And there are differences. Uh, men have more anaerobic capacity in their lungs and in, in their ability for the heart to go through its oxygen. Uh, there's bone density issues. There's body fat percentage differences. There's natural testosterone differences uh, that are just, those aren't moral differences. They're just physiological right, right. distinctions. And in the name of equality and fairness, the Equality Act actually ends up creating very unequal, unfair circumstances by not allowing women to compete against other women right, and right. then also denying womanhood altogether. And, it, and it's not just a matter of men's and women's sports and the separations right. there, though that is important. Uh, Chelsea, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like the differences for vulnerable populations of women, like women's shelters or even why we have women's prisons and, and what the Equality Act would do to those different domains as well. Absolutely. So like Andrew said, this bill essentially erases womanhood and femininity. So any sex-segregated space, whether that's a bathroom, a locker room, a prison, a shelter, you name it, anything that is sex-segregated for good reason would be completely erased. These women and girls are already vulnerable in so many aspects of society today. You know, we're we're seeing the the Me Too movement where um, sexual abuse and sexual assault is coming to light. And so we're wrestling with that, but we're also trying to codify erasing all of our sex-segregated spaces into law. There's a case in Alaska, actually, where this has happened. A, a man went into a women's shelter and um, was predatorial towards the women there. Mm. And there's a case in North Carolina right now where a biological man who is identifying as trans wants to be in a women's prison. So um, there are cases popping up all over the country. And I think the Equality Act, if passed into law, Mm -hmm. would be completely detrimental to an already vulnerable population of women and then of of young girls as well. Right. I think, you know, one thing to, you know, point out uh, even further is that uh, the Equality Act would add uh, sex to Title VI of the Civil Rights mm-hmm. Act, which deals with recipients of federal grants. So mm-hmm. if you have a private school that is single gender, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a yeshiva or a Catholic school, uh, and they receive reduced lunch funds from the government, well, it raises a question whether whether they can even continue to be sex segregated at all, um, right. you know, or, or whether the receipt of the you know even that really small uh, stream of funds would force them to be uh, force the school as a whole to be open to both genders. So let me pose this question, uh, Andrew. Maybe you can start, and then Travis Chelsea, you can jump in. What outcome does ERLC prefer in this cultural moment? Speaking, I think for myself personally, but we probably all agree. I I want the Equality Act to be quashed. I want it to go nowhere. If there are conversations 
to be had about how we strike a compromise uh, to protect everyone, uh, because Christians want to see everyone protected and their dignity upheld. We should have that conversation. Uh, We need to sit down across the table from each other and not be drafting bills in opposite uh, one another. And uh, I think problematically, there just has not been satisfactory language yet developed. I know that there are are attempts that we want to uh, applaud the motive of, at least, but there hasn't been any true compromise staked out right now. I think if you look at the Equality Act, the the bill has has so many problems uh, in terms of of reaching into areas. I mean, I mentioned just a moment ago, you know, the Equality Act would would mean the end of sex segregated private education based just on the on the way that the bill is drafted. And so, I think it it, it does raise a question of whether you know how serious the bill is as a legislative effort, or whether uh, whether it is just a simply a tool for messaging. Um, obviously, you know, we don't expect uh, Mitch McConnell to to pick up the bill. Um, I do think it will probably be it will probably be passed by the House uh, in in the summer. Uh, but this bill is not gonna is not gonna arrive on the president's desk in its current form um, anytime soon. With that being said, I, I think Andrew does raise a good point that that we are, and I, and I think maybe you know part of the way that I look at this is is that we're we're in the middle of of a of a long national conversation about LGBT about the LGBT community and about religious liberty and about all of these things and I think to some extent we're we're at the beginning of that conversation or in the middle of it we're not quite close to the end and I think as you know Zandra alluded to there you know there are a number of religious liberty thinkers and scholars who are you know and I I would consider our organization to be part of this having a discussion about how can we ensure. Uh, a society where everybody is safe, free from discrimination, and allowed uh, to have a wide variety of viewpoints um, on on sexuality and, and anthropology. I mean, I think you know to the point that we were making earlier about Brunei. Just as we would oppose what's happening there, we're also not interested in using the levers of government to impose our vision of human sexuality uh, and uh, and anthropology on on people who don't agree with us. And so I think. We're in the middle of a conversation. I don't know how long this conversation is going to last. I mean, I, I mean, I think you know we could be you know we could be in a space like this where there's legal uncertainty for you know for a decade or more. I, I definitely think that's within within the realm of possibility. But you know, as Andrew said, I, I I think that what's what's needed now is is for people who for people who disagree on these very fundamental issues that, that go to the core of who we are. To begin to come together to build relationships with each other and, and try to find a way forward. I would hope that an outcome of this current debate is a more robust discussion of principled pluralism and why pluralism, not only in the public square, but also in our in our neighborhoods and in our communities, really, really matters. Uh, are we as Americans going to be able to live together uh, in in peace uh, when we hold fundamental different views of what the good, the true, and the beautiful is? Uh, I think the answer has always been yes to that, but this particular debate is going to test that again. And, uh, you know, I I know we've gone back to this multiple times uh, on Capital Conversation, but our conversation uh, with Jonathan Lehman uh, in his book, How the Nations Rage, is he talks about the public square is is a battleground of God's. Uh, for too long, we've all sort of assumed uh, that we're not having debates on core fundamental issues. But indeed, we are. And uh, that's why a, 
a robust understanding of principled pluralism really matters, not just for the future uh, of the United States, but for the future of the church globally, to understand what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ in a world that disagrees with us. ERLC is here in Washington, D.C. to make that case before, before our body politic and before the decision makers who hold the levers of government power that we can indeed live peacefully with one another uh, while disagreeing on these fundamental issues. And so I, I would just hope that a conversation about pluralism, uh, which I think has been way too stagnant for way too long, uh, might come out of this discussion. So Andrew, last question I want to pose to you. Let's think about the church. Let's think about pastors. How should pastors lead their congregation uh, to talk about and think about this cultural moment as the Equality Act is, uh, without a doubt, going to uh, generate a lot of stories and news coverage, and uh, hopefully, as Christians and pastors are paying attention, how should they lead their congregation to think about these issues? One of the things that I am trying to communicate to pastors and audiences wherever I speak is Christians hold right, true, good, and beautiful convictions about our sexuality, about the definition of marriage, and about who God made us as as males and females. But if we can't explain that, um, we're we're not going to move the ball forward, and we may never persuade those on um, the progressive side. But what we what we can at least do is try to articulate our viewpoint in a way that is is understandable, if not agreed. Um, and so, what we need to be doing is committing ourselves to a level of of rigorous study um, to understand that Genesis one and two are not sectarian truths relevant and applicable only to Christians, but because Genesis 1 and 2 comes at the very beginning of the story, the Bible is painting a vision for all of created reality, that the Bible's vision for man and woman and for marriage applies to all persons equally. Uh, And so we need to be articulating that and articulating it in a way that whether you want to call it natural law or general revelation, but communicating how the truths of Scripture are born out in creation so that for example, God making us males and females, uh, that's not a gender, that's not a, a cultural construct, that's a biological reality that even science identifies down to the level of our chromosomes. So this is, this is a, a long conversation. Uh, it's something that, you know, in a, in a soundbite age like ours that rewards you for reading memes and not books, <laughs> um, we're going to need some time to understand that we're not the weird ones for mm. believing what we believe yeah. around gender and sexuality. I have these conversations online and with people all the time, and the more I'm in these conversations, the more confident I am that we have the best answer that provides hope for individuals and a, a script and a hope for a society that is trying to find ever new creative ways to uninvent itself in an abolition of man-style regression like C.S. Lewis talked about. So we need to have courage. Um, Pastors need to be talking about this, not every single Sunday, um, but because we need to go where the battle rages. uh, We need pastors who are equipping our people to know and have confidence that how God made us is both true and good. It's also self-evident. That's a good word to end on, Andrew. I appreciate all of the... um the work that you've done, uh, not just on the Equality Act, but on everything that preceded it and has led us to this moment and helping uh, not only uh, pastors, but but also all of us internally at ERLC uh, think well about 
about issues of gender and sexuality. I really appreciate you. And uh, I look forward to the next opportunity that I have to invite you into the sports Slack channel and then quickly (laughs) watch you leave. leave. Uh, It's definitely (laughs) one of my my favorite things to do on Slack. Andrew, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Jeff, DC team, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, especially Gary Lancaster, today as we worked out the studio-to-studio connection. Thanks to Marie Delph, Conrad Close, and our policy intern, Josie Perry, for helping us do the research for this episode and for getting this episode published online. Resources from the conversation are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church. (laughs) 